Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production system. Okay, so theme for today for our podcast, our Cow Talks podcast in live section is on hay quality. And why we choose hay quality? Because um, we had a hard time producing hay this year. We had a lot of rain. Uh, most of the hay we've seen around here, I'm going to bet, is low quality. Most of the folks are not testing it, so which can be an issue. But um, the other side of the coin is that commodity prices have been very high recently. So high, high commodity prices, low hay quality, not a very nice scenario to start your winter feeding program. Uh, and then we want to talk a little bit about your tool, the hay balancer, and how it works and how you can help the producers to balance that winter diet. So Nico, go ahead. I'll give a brief introduction on the hay balancer. Um, but basically started as a tool, started as a glorified Excel spreadsheet that I put together to address questions from producers the first couple of years, the first couple of winters that I was here. Uh, took me a while to figure out the the, the way that uh, the yeah the, the different type of question and different times of the year. One thing that I could always count on, and still I do, it's very consistent, is people asking about hay balancing diets for this time of the year. And uh, this year I anticipate it's going to be worse because of what you just say, Marcelo. And, and it's not this year. It happened every couple of years. Um, I, I have uh, some producers that have entirely gone to... Uh, wrapping everything basically doing away with hay because uh i and i don't i not entirely disagree some of them would tell me hay is the most expensive feed in my operation and many of them especially when you start putting what it brings i mean you don't in the context of being a forage and an excess of in your operation typically yeah you may not put into that into consideration but if you were to take into account the amount of effort went into growing it, not only the seed, but the fertilizer, mainly the fertilizer. And what you get out of that, I, it's hard to argue that point, that it is perhaps one of the most expensive feeds. But uh, at the same time, I would agree, we don't have a lot of things that are that bulky that will provide a gut feel, even if it may not be at least just uh, 100% covering the requirements. That's why we get into things like that hay balancer you still would be at least just providing a gut feel and, and that animal at least will just, just have something. Because I, I, I tried to, or people have tried the same with concentrated feeds, feeding a small amount, maybe even 1% of the body weight and nothing else and not even having hay. And it does not work. I mean, it's, uh, we, we try it even, it, that I'm convinced that there's gotta be something that these animals have to get uh before yeah and you can balance you have to balance that but the, the gut feel effect as, as i call it it's maybe a lot more important than we give it credit to so the hay balancer started with that idea of well 
I got this, hey, what, what do I do? First, I looked at as a tool to get people to test, and that's that's an ongoing battle, as many of you know. I know well, all of you in this call and people that may watch this later. If they are in an, uh, they've been an extension, that has been one of the messages that we've been pushing for years. Hay quality first, producing a, a good quality hay, and the second to test for it. And uh, the hay balancer only works if you at least have an idea of what protein and energy, PDN and crude protein you have in the hay. And so I, I first looked at it as a way to maybe uh, push people to test. And then with that, I would be able to provide a balance because the most common question is, hey, I have this hay, what do I feed it with? And I can, and I, first I struggle with my early extension year, I struggle on how to make the point that I cannot give you an answer without a, a test. But then I said, well, I'll give you examples. So I have somebody bring me a ryegrass hay and, I, and it had happened and there's nothing really that you need to add to that. It was just 15% protein, probably 65 TDN. I mean, depending on, how, and, and depending on what you're feeding to, you want to, if you want to background calves on hay, very few things will work. Uh, doesn't matter how good the hay is. But, but now if you want to uh, just winter a cow, uh, like a pregnant cow, most common scenario, I, there's a lot of options for that. You can do limpograss or sometimes you can do poor bahia and they're not much different. The point is that you could really fill the requirement or, or uh, yeah, match the requirements of the, of the brood cow with a, a poor quality hay and just a little bit of protein and, and energy. And it can be very, very concentrated. So we started developing, I say we because started more of the team effort from the Panhandle uh, extension team providing or asking me questions. And um, I started developing this Excel spreadsheet that evolved into the hay balancer. And really the, the key point on that hay balancer that I, that, that really got me going was the intake. Because then I realized that the next part where we miss, I think we probably are, are missing the boat quite a bit sometimes in, in, in extent, well, not an extension, in balancing diets based on hay, it's intake. Uh, all of the data are out, a lot of the data, not all of it. It's been generated in the Midwest with cool season forages where protein uh, sometimes is not an issue and if nothing else, the fiber is different. So we know about C3 and C4 species. So uh, the forages that we have here in the South, when I start putting together studies that my student did, some of others, other people were whenever measured, whenever hay was measured, I can start noticing that it was way less than what I, even I was using to formulate. And you, I might've repeated this so many times that I'm beginning to believe in myself that the 2% that they don't need 2% of their body weight. I, I actually do, I'm joking, I do believe that they don't need 2% of body weight in hay unless you have an extremely good quality hay. But if you look at many publications, extension and others, you start with that and then you balance based on that. And when, once I start playing with that and, and looking at what we were actually getting as far as intake, whenever we measure, I've noticed that our cows in the best scenario, the best, um, it was a 5 hay that we fed in the, in the feed efficiency barn. That's another important point. We have an ability to measure now intake 
uh, with many tools that, that we have. When we fed that in the barn, our cow, lactating cow, consumed 1.7% of the body weight. And that was, that was the best they could do. Uh, and they maintained body weight. They, this was, a, I believe, it was 14% group protein, 55 or 58 TDN. So it was not probably some of our best Tifton 85 hay. But um, whenever, even on that same hay, the same cow dry, not lactating, we weaned the calf on her. We had the little study to just to check hay intake. That cow consumed 1.4% of the body weight. But regardless of that, the point that, that difference, which is not that small between 1.4 or 1.7 all the way to two, it's enough to, to realize that many times when I was doing recommendations for balancing that diet, I was always assuming cow will eat 2%. So uh, with that, you can argue that one or two pounds of almost anything supplemented, gluten, and, uh, yeah, distillers, even, I wouldn't say corn because corn is still not short in protein, but anything with a little bit more than 15% than protein should get you there. But then if those guys are only eating 1.4 or 1.7% or of the body weight at best, it's not enough, definitely not enough. So that's when I started putting together after we completed the study and we noticed we measure actually on 60,000, 120,000 in the barn. 60 were weaned, 60 were not. Then um, they were, uh, we noticed that they were getting uh, intakes much lower than what we ever recorded. So uh, my the Excel spreadsheet that we put together started with the premise of intake. And I have a disclaimer on that, or I guess a, a comment that it is calculated based on a study we've done here at, at NFRC. And we, so I start from the premise that they will eat. I might have done the average of both, or I think actually have a, a correction factor, whether it's like dating a dry cow, 1.7 or 1.4% of the body weight. But the, the point of recognizing that they eat quite a bit less and that it could be 30% less. So now you need to look at maybe more like three pounds at least of something like gluten for the most part to balance the diet of a hay-based diet. And that's just, that's a very, very basic um, uh, idea and concept. Uh, from then we started adding just a few other tools. I got in and I, I'm, I'm at fault with some, some of uh, my, my station colleagues because I've been asked to tweak that hay balancer to include like a growing heifer. And I, I, I say I would do it eventually. I would love to do it. Um, yeah, funny story is the way I'm not, I'm definitely not a, a tech savvy person, but uh, the amount of time that took me to do the things that any, any of you that have a little bit more skills, you'll think I'm stupid, but what it took me to learn how to do macros and the little recording and things in Excel, basically I'm using macros in Excel and um, just uh, hyperlinks and moving from one page to another. So it's, that's what I, I, I hesitate to call it anything other than just an Excel spreadsheet, but I call it a hay balancer, but uh, it basically includes some, uh, yeah, some, some options to calculate daily feed intake and, and sorry, daily cost of supplementation and, and the possibility to tweak 
price of something. So uh, we have it. I'm going to pull out the exact. If you go to the NFREC, uh, the, the easiest way is the NFREC uh, webpage, which is nfrec.ifas.ufl.edu. That is our NFREC, North Florida Research and Education Center. In there, there is an uh, extension uh, tab. Uh, within that beef and forage at the very bottom, you will see a link for the hay balance. Okay. Nico, you, you mentioned, so back to the nutrition talk, which, which sure. I'm very interested in. And this is going to lead, this question is going to lead to something that Chris is probably going to ask on, on commodities, on what commodities we should be looking for in the future. But you, you mentioned gut feel as one of the very important things that we many times uh, don't think about when, when supplementing or when planning supplementation uh, or, or our winter feeding program. Uh, in most of the farmers, most of the beef cattle farmers are going to ask, what's the crude protein? What's the TDN? And, and, and it, it stops there. Now, when I talk to my dairy folks, uh, the first thing they ask, what is the NDF digestibility? Yeah, <laughs> good question. Uh, I... On the, on the beef world, we're, we're not there yet. Um, it's not a concept that has been really um, pushed. And I tell you my, my two cents on that. I think first, number one, and there is because you really depend on energy intake. So there has a, a big challenge. You need energy intake, but you need to have enough forage in it. So you need to have, strike that balance. So, you, so then forage digestibility becomes impo important because you want that, you need that, that forage in there to create the conditions in the rumen that are ideal for yeah, the, the fermentation, at least to these things that we all know about milk production. But you definitely, uh, so you, but you definitely do not want to have poor quality forage in there, especially in a high producing dairy cow because it's just taking space for something else that otherwise it could be bringing energy. The, particularly on the cow, on the beef cow situation, it, it's different for, for one main reason. Usually when we talk about winter feeding or hay feeding, we're talking about wintering cows that all we want is for them to maintain at best. We'll be happy if they don't lose that much weight, but, but if, uh, at best we want to maintain their condition. So we're, we're looking at a whole different scenario. That is my explanation of why NDF digestibility still has not made it into the, the beef world. If you're, if we get into the discussion of backgrounding, which I would love to, if, if, if we can, that's a whole different scenario, especially looking at Chris's uh, picture in the background there. That's exactly what, uh, yeah, that, that, I, I love those kind of forages. That's my, my new uh, kind of favorite forage is all those uh, uh, summer annuals, typically those used for backgrounding or stocking or just to do something after we wean cattle. In that scenario, NDA digestibility should become important. And, and I still argue that it's not, but hopefully with your efforts and what other people are doing with silage, we will begin to pay attention because there, you have another issue, which you have a, a limited gut capacity. So this these animals are small, typically. They get full pretty quick, and they're growing. So they demand a lot of nutrients. So yes, you still want it for you because typically it's a cheaper way to background an animal. But but you want that forage to be digestible. You're almost in the situation as a dairy cow. 
So you do want the forage in there, but you, you start paying attention to the brown mint rib types, uh, to the digestibility of that fiber. And, and I think that's, I think it's going to be more and more relevant down the road. But on a cow, on a wintering diet, and on hay, I would say, yeah, we're still far from that. I think we're still, it's unfortunate. We're still trying to figure out intake of that hay. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll, I'll throw something in there. It's just great to have one of the young, great animal science minds with us today. Um, so whenever we're talking about backgrounding or even wintering some of these cow herds, um, uh, we're thinking about developing this ration. They, you know, they still have access to pasture in a lot of these scenarios. So aren't they, so we've calculated this ration, but they're still going to do some grazing, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what they're grazing in a lot of cases, they're kind of just probably picking, you know, the absolute best out of there, whatever they may be lacking. So are they going to be, these animals going to be performing a little bit better than what we may have estimated on the hay balancer? Is that possible? Uh, yeah, typically, yes. The, the point is, if there is something there, if we're using the hay balancers, hopefully because we're in a winter situation where if there is any forage left, I'm, I'm thinking maybe more typical scenario here uh, in the middle of the winter, if there is no winter forage available. If on the winter forage, a whole different discussion, yeah, yeah. and we can go there if you want. But, but typically, there may be some grass and then maybe I'm speaking more North Florida. I know South Florida, it may be a lot more grass. It may be certainly earlier than, than we get here. And, um, and, and that does start interfering. The, the, the issue is what I all, often say, I, I think if they're grazing, chances are that's going to be even better than whatever hay we're putting in general, um, especially if it's hay from the same operation, if they're going to be grazing. So it dilutes that to some extent, but but for good. More than diluted, I guess it, it strengthens or increases the overall nutrient supply on the diet. But the challenge there is to figure out how much and and how that's uh, that's the area for Marcelo and, and Jose, the grazing behavior. How, how much do they really can graze and to what extent they can do so efficiently? Uh, that's that's a question. But yes, sir, that, and we see it all the time, Chris, when, and here, Right now, even that we have a little bit left of, of forage, uh, of uh, grazing, and you can see the pasture they have. They're all getting the same diet after weaning our calves. Pasture they have is still a little bit of grass left, and it's it's remaining grass. And now it's not growing much, so you can see it being gone day by day. But those calves do so much better. So to me, it's it's anecdotal entirely. I don't have a lot of numbers for that, but to me, it's just. The, the, the balance of what, what they pick, it really increases the plant nutrition. Yeah. Um, another thing that uh, I commonly discuss with backgrounders and stalker operators is, you know, in terms of looking at what's missing in our diet, whenever, you know, because we're just looking at nutrient requirements and chasing performance, uh, chasing average daily gain, total gain, we're looking for energy in our byproduct feed stuffs, whatever we're going to be adding. We're just, we're really chasing energy. And if we have something like corn, corn silage, obviously you, that's something you've been playing with and you, you add that additional protein, but a lot of times 
I feel like uh, whenever we're looking at supplements, we're limited because we're just looking at what potentially has that next highest level of energy that's affordable, relatively affordable. Now, uh, whole cotton seed obviously is it's been discussed. It's kind of been priced out of you know the market some years, and then other years, all of a sudden it's back to one sixty. Mm-hmm. But right now, over three hundred dollars a ton in some cases. It just it's very difficult to to think about that being you know relevant and and added to a ration. Um, so you know, so your operators that are that are in your area, what are you kind of talking to them about on energy supplementation right now? Losing the plant for the DDGs where you can't really get yeah. locally. So what are your thoughts that's, on, on those comments? That's a very relevant question. That is my almost uh, daily. In fact, when we finish here today, I need to start working on a diet for a producer that is in that particular situation. Surprisingly, uh, on this particular producer, uh, distillers, and, and maybe I shouldn't be that surprised, distillers still price is pretty good. Now, coming in railroad from the Midwest. Uh, so it creates some logistical uh, challenges. So we don't no longer have the, the plan that we had and locally available. Um, and, and that is the one thing that, um, that, um, that I see that, that we, we really, like you say, we're in trouble with energy. The, the comment, just a quick comment on cotton whole cotton seed. I love whole cotton seed because it's a great seed. It brings everything. It brings fiber, uh, protein, and energy all packed in a way that cattle really cannot overconsume a lot of it. Um, it just mostly, it's, it's really easy to distribute. So, but right now we're at the worst moment. Right now we in October 6th. I know you may, people may hear this later. Uh, October early October, we are at the worst time to buy cotton products. And I learned that yesterday, trying to get cottonseed holes, for instance, which are essential part of our bull test diet. We are in very tight supply because we're right at the end. And those products, particularly cottonseed holes, being a, a fire hazard, the cotton genes, they want to get rid of that as quickly as possible. So, and it's bulky, doesn't add a lot of nutrition to to that particularly energy, which is what we're discussing. So that's the first thing that goes. And we've been trying to, but that and gin trash are two things that people usually sell right away. None, none of which bring any energy. So that doesn't help. But at this point uh, that we're about to start the harvest, we haven't started, we're, we're, yeah, we're about to start and the conditions are not great yet because it's rainy. Uh, we are at the lowest uh, point in terms of stocks for cotton. So we will not even be able to find our usual, like cottonseed meal, things that are more of a commodity. We're still struggling to some extent, definitely with cottonseed hold and, and whole cotton and cottonseed meal. I have not tried whole cottonseed, but I would anticipate that it is the same until maybe we get into well into October late October, and then we're going to start getting a lot more of that. So what we have uh, energy-wide, we revolve around distillers, uh, gluten. Sometimes some people even overfeed protein to get a little bit of energy with cottonseed meal. I don't think that is that's a great idea. Uh, 
I see uh, Joe brought a, a, a comment about wet brews and, and that is that, that and two things that I have not played with much, but I know a lot of people are using in large quantities. Wet brewers, uh, excellent, excellent feed. If you can pass the logistics of that, it's an excellent source of, of protein and great conditioner to the diet. And uh, the other one is some of the bakery waste products that are available uh, centrally located. That's something I have not played much with those, but I know some, some places that are producing uh, feed that I've been told is a, a pretty good quality, particularly energy in, uh, from the waste of bakery products. I would love to play more with that. Um, there's time where, like not too long ago, I was able to buy uh, corn at $320 a ton. Uh, or even in lead, even $300 a ton. So sometimes it may not be terrible. I mean, corn, cracked corn, or um, I don't think it's going to last long. I think it's going to go back. But to kind of to summarize, gluten continues uh, to be the best. Soy holes, I should not forget soy holes. Uh, and distillers probably are the top three of, of energy. Um, I, as many of you know, I play a lot with liquid feeds. I'm a big proponent of liquid feeds under the right conditions and right conditions being having some forage available. One thing that I'm a big proponent of not doing is to feed liquid feeds without any bulky feed on the side. I go back to the gut feel. It works great and it helps digest some of that fiber, but it does not produce any fill effect and as much as we want to rely on intake limiters, which to some extent they work. I've seen cow herds of hungry cattle where they, all they have is a lick wheel or an open trough and they drink, they eat like as if it was candy. And, 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 and there's, if there's nothing else to hold them in terms of intake. So energy is a big one. Um, a while ago, I remember talking about the importance of the, the, of the protein on and I'm, I'm going back to that uh, to that gut feel thing because uh, um, I think this is going to be an important topic. Uh, limitation of intake with very bad quality hay is here. And I remember you you have a talk on the on the importance of protein supplementation. So even if you increase your your energy because that that could be your most limiting you want, those cows are not needing uh, protein or a lot of protein. Uh, they they just on the seven percent maintenance there, but you end up getting a greater benefit of uh, additive benefit by feeding more pro more protein because uh, nitrogen because then you can get more get um, get more digestion on the in, in the rumen and use that hay better or maybe pass that hay faster to to increase intake in, in the general sense versus if you're just adding more energy because if you're if that's your most limiting. Um, so should we be looking at that also this year with uh, with a pretty low quality hay in our hands? Yes, uh, yeah, definitely, Marcelo. That's a good point. But but it tends to be more expensive. So sometimes you can do that to some extent. Uh, yeah, maybe get the protein supplementation if if the hay is low in protein. Definitely, because then you're going to run into the issue of of, of protein deficiency. So. But protein in general, some, in general, you can, most of the feeds that I just mentioned, with the exception maybe of soy holes and citrus, I forgot to say citrus pellets, another great energy 
dense feed that I, I love, but does not help us at all in, in terms of protein. So um, with the exception of soy holes and, and citrus, you most of the other feeds will, will cover your protein needs while you're trying to get energy. So, uh, but if, if your hay is low in protein, definitely um, I, what I like sometimes is the cottonseed meal because of how perhaps in that area is the most uh, protein dense feed stuff that we have or one of them. The most cost-effective one, you still could feed other things, but not cost-effectively like soybean meal. So uh, when you're doing that, like putting a, uh, something that high, you may only need two pounds of cottonseed meal to fulfill or to, to um, yeah, meet the protein requirements. So um, yeah, you do get that benefit. And sometimes, like you say, it has a benefit on intake. So if you, especially if a hay intake uh, or, or the hay digestibility is limiting intake, you could get a bit of a, of a, yeah, of a benefit in terms of hay intake and overall energy. You, we, we can never forget that at the end of the day, we're not measuring requirements and percentages. It's pounds and uh, pounds of protein, pounds of uh, TDN. So if we get a little bit, even if you get a 50%, say you get a, a 50% TDN, hay or yeah, hay, hay, poor quality. One of the things that some people have done, it's not cost effective, but it works. So you can grind it. And then what you do is you increase the rate of passage of that. So what happens is that hay gets digested to whatever extent it can be digested. And then it will leave the rumen and allow for more intake. And that's another way to increase the energy intake. Of course, it may not be very cost efficient because of the, the, the labor and, and all the thing, but but that's one way that uh, it's been done in the past where you could increase or process to some extent the hay. And there's there maybe some opportunity now. I'm very eager to try some of the newer hay equipment. They have the ability to chop. I would like to see how that works with things. Again, I'm not picking on lymphograss, but but I will. <laughs> Uh, or Bahia, like I say, I got Limpograss and Bahia and poor Bahia, they're not much different between those two. Yeah. But what I would love for those grasses is just to take the room in the room and whatever they need for how long they need to be there to maximize the digestion and then leave as soon as, as, soon as they reach that maximum digestibility in the room and just make room for something else, which could be more Bahia grass, but, but make room. Yeah. So just just to give a little idea of what we're talking in terms of quality, uh, out of uh, these years, 384 samples submitted to the Southeastern Hay Contest, 10 were Bahia grass. So we don't have a lot of Bahia grass. We're talking about hay that people thought it would be good to, to, to win the contest. And when I look here, the maximum crude protein I can find here is 9.3. And everything else... Everything else is around, uh, is the average is much is much lower. It's around eight, eight and a half average. And TDN anywhere from forty eight, from forty five to to fifty nine. TDN yeah. fifty nine would be pretty pretty darn yeah. good. Hey, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just saw that Joe had a question, and that's a really good question on on what happened if we chop Bahia or any other forage. Do you lose effective fiber and it is to some extent yes 
But the argument in, in the situation where you're feeding bahia grass for wintering cows, that really there's no relevance of, of the long fiber effect. That usually comes into play with high producing dairy cows or feedlot cattle that really are in need of that scratch factor or long fiber that will stimulate rumination and, and, and buffering. Uh, so for, for cows, I, I actually would argue the opposite though. I would rather get that thing chopped again. I, it's hard to, to recommend that because it's not economical uh, other than maybe whatever we may see in the future with this new, new um, hay harvesters. I'm really curious about that for, for poor quality hay. But if I could, and you can actually still run it through a hay buster, it still can be like a couple inches long and it's great stretch factor. Um, if you think about even cottonseed holes, they're not, you don't see a lot of that. Um, and uh, so your question is, even if you're free choice brewer grain, I never try free choice brewer grains. That would be interesting. Uh, uh, I, I would say yes, still you could get away with with chopped bahia, I still have plenty of, of long fiber, uh, but you definitely do one. In that case, you definitely do one bahia. More, more about free choice rural grain, my number one concern would be intake. It is probably as low as I ever seen a product uh, in terms of dry matter. What is it, 20, maybe 15, 20% dry matter? If that, I'm not sure, but I it used to be really wet. It's about 25% what we're getting. 25. Yeah. So my biggest concern with that is that how much you can really get them to consume and whether you would be limiting their total intake capacity based on, on that. So that's where Bahia grass, so I, I would think that would be a perfect diet, just Bahia grass mixed in with brewer's grains and, and provide that protein uh, brewer grains is a great feed. I, I love, like I said, the only issue I've seen the few times what I've seen it fed is the logistics of that. Just uh, being able to keep up with uh, supply, constant supply, uh, the seepage or drainage of that, figuring out a way for it to drain and so that it doesn't complicate the delivery of the extraction every day. But it's a great feed and it probably has some added benefits in terms of all that dead yeast. There's a lot of work now being done about yeast cell wall and the effect they might have on immunity. It's anecdotal, but I've seen a lot of people making a claim about what cattle look like when fed brewer grains. And there may be something on that cell wall. We know that the yeast cell wall has a lot of uh, compounds like beta glucans that have been associated with boosting the immune system. So. Miko, changing changing a little bit from that yeah. cow to that calf, and I'm assuming, sure. I'm assuming most of our folks that are going to do some fowl calving are counting on cool season forages, uh, because that's probably going to be the the most effective way to keep that cow producing producing well in that first um, first trimester lactation. Um, well, not first trimester. We're talking about beef cows, not dairy cows here, but that uh, that that. Two, two to three month period where there is a lot of demand and that cow needs to to recover to get in the breeding season again and, and be serviced uh, sometime early spring. So probably talking about some 
some good cool season forages for that. But also one thing that pops up frequently is the, the process of uh, the technique of crib feeding. Um, either if that cow is in a good hay that, or, or in a pasture, that crib feeding might be an important way to, um, to, to, to get that calf uh, gaining, gaining good weight, right? I go back and forth. Creep feeding is a cyclic thing. Every so many years, it becomes popular again. It's always been popular. The one thing that I am always been very um, uh, concerned about creep feeding is creep feeding free choice can turn into one of the most expensive propositions. It, it all depends on how you market your calves to me. Um, what what am I what am I going with that? If you if if you want to retain ownership and you may see an effect of that calf later in terms of both weaning performance, whether it's backgrounding or even finishing, even, even more finishing. There's a lot of data showing the effect of exposing that calf early to starch, for instance, at least, or, 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 or better nutrition, the effect they may have on, on marbling. That's been documented. So if you're going to market your calf that way, that's great. If, if your endpoint is selling the calf or the yeah, calf at weaning, it could be one of the most expensive propositions because the conversions on lactating, so nursing calves that are fed free choice, um, uh, creep feeding, it, they're awesome. The conversions are really, so if you, when people do the math on that, that's really could be an expensive situation. Now it works in certain scenarios where maybe may, may, many times in purebred operations it may work if you need to get get that. Maybe some of those cats will become bulls and you want to push them. That's one scenario. I tell you when I don't think it works. I have not seen it, even though sometimes people may think that's the case. It's just to to kind of make it a little easier on the cow. There's been historically people would say well i'm gonna feed feed so maybe they'll just a little easier in milk production and i can get my cow rebred earlier i've rarely ever seen that happen i think what my in my experience the calf will drink all the milk they can they'll keep pushing that cow to produce more and they'll eat all the the creep feeding that they can so it all goes in the calf the calf may look great but i would not do it to to help the cow get rebred for instance now, I remember actually my, well, colleague and boss now, uh, John Arthington, he used to talk about certain supplementation strategies that I think are worth considering on early wean calves put on a uh, limit fed type of creep feeding situation. And the benefit that that might have from an immune standpoint, maybe creep feeding with higher copper selenium levels. So I uh, figured that or, or figured a way to put a little bit more minerals into that calf, particularly in early weaning, that is a great way to me to use creep feeding more than, so I'm, I'm a little hesitant of the creep feed, the traditional approach, free choice with a commodity that it may be uh, gluten or it, it could be really expensive. I've seen conversion. The problem is nobody measured conversion because to do that, you have to have, the way to do that, you have to have another set of calves that are only lactating and then compare at the end of the day so okay this ate so much feed they weigh so much more at the end of my season how much did it cost me people that do that rarely go back to feeding free choice 
but but sometimes there are special situations like droughts that I can see where it may be justified or running out of of hay. But so, in general, it's it's expensive. So the message is it probably is worth more investing on the cow than on the calf at that point because the, the cow is getting all the requirements from the calf. The yes. calf is getting all the requirements from the cow. Exactly. That one or early wean and then just put it all in the calf. That's another option. Another thing that I've seen that contrasted against perhaps an early weaning situation and feeding that calf, feeding it more, mm. there you really need to increase the quality of that feed. So I mean, not your regular creek feeding may not work, but it may still be more cost-effective to early wean and put it all on the calf, knowing that it may be a different calf than, than just the normal so weaning. We're, we're talking about what, 60 days, 90 days early weaning? Uh, I think Gona has experience uh, with 90, Chris, is that, or, or even 70, I think. 75 to, to 90 is the typical. Yeah. That's, that's a minimum. As Less early that, as 70. Yeah, because we, the idea is also we, we want to get the calf to give the, to, to give the cow an opportunity to recover. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, almost I would say based on Ona research, and that's uh, uh, this is just uh, really a, a great advertisement of what you guys are known and done. It's almost a must at this point for uh, first calf heifers. I think uh, you know the one strategy that I've seen increase conception rates in first calf heifers has been early weaning to the point that I know many producers are doing it. Uh, we have considered that. Uh, we still haven't done it. We always get away with a little better nutrition uh, from winter forages here that we can at least provide to the, even to the, but the first calf heifer is, is the worst category and they could use all the help they want. And early weaning is what I've seen as one of the top strategies. Okay. Let's, let's, let's go, let's go a little bit different. We talked about a cow. We talked about the calf a little bit. Let's talk about the heifer. We're growing that replacement heifer. You know, we're grazing people. We like to see cows on the pasture grazing. We like to see some cool season forages. They are very lush. They are high in, high in digestibility. They're very high in protein, low in fiber. And we normally don't, don't talk much about supplementation on those, on, on those pastures because we do have all the energy and protein that they, they would probably need and it's just more expense. But we, what should we be looking into supplementing in terms of uh, probably, probably mineral supplementation on those pastures that might be lacking for those replacement heifers who are trying or, or, or trying to background or, or steers are trying to background there to put a little more weight before selling to the market or before putting those heifers into the, into the bull herd? Yeah, in terms of, uh, so winter grazing, there's not much to supplement there, even in those scenarios. Mineral always, that always should be, regardless of where they are, I think that that should be, being in Florida, we need to be aware of that. Uh, maybe a high mag mineral, uh, growing calves, it's, it's very rare that we've seen the hypomagnesemia issues. In cow, lactating cows, it's very common. It's one of the things that kills the most cows that I've, I've seen in the winter time here. Uh, those lash pastures and and balance between uh, potassium and magnesium it's really common so i would say minerals for sure but beyond that and minerals and perhaps a high mag just just to be safe particularly in potential case of having cows 
also in that fashion. Um, there have been some people sort of uh, arguing that the possibility of supplementing uh, on the winter forages just because of the lack of intake capacity, which is true. Back to the comment by Joe on the, so we're talking about something here that has 18, 20% dry matter, so very large pasture. I have recorded intakes of 1.8% of the body weight on, on uh, well, using like a green chop approach when we were measuring that. And that's all they can do with a very large uh, oats and ryegrass. They cannot consume a lot of it. So, but still to make the economics pay when you're already investing $230, $250 per acre on establishing that pasture, particularly if you move southern to uh, in the Florida Peninsula, you get fewer days to really spread that out into like some of the talks you Marcelo have been giving about how you really need to make it pay. Um, it is hard to recommend any supplementation on that. You get two pounds a day for at least here in North Florida over a hundred days. It doesn't get much better than that. Like I say some people have, have played with the idea of supplementing to maybe push the gains. My argument would be even for growing, growing um, replacement heifer, not sure I want them to grow much more than that. Uh, and if you want to maybe uh, yeah, finish an animal, it may not be the best time of the year to do it. It could be expensive because of the amount of intake that you will need to the amount of acreage you will need to, to get a pound of gain with that, that little dry matter. So um, yeah, in general, I would say it's hard to recommend much more. What that's what could be something I have not played is just use it as a protein bank. Maybe allow a few hours of grazing and then going back to hay. That's something that it, it works well. It probably should be explored more. So limit graze, uh, allow for a short time, get the protein that way, and then they can go back to something a little bit less nutrition. Awesome. Yeah, I was uh, I was trying to get to the to the um, milk fever hypoglycemia, which is not as common in dairy in in in, in uh, beef cows more and more in the dairy cows, but definitely the milk the grass tetany or hypo. What's that hypomagnesemia? Hypomagnesemia. Thank you. No, that, that is an issue. That's something that people sometimes take for granted, and uh, particularly mature cows and lactating. It's it's a lot more common than people think, and the solution is so so cheap that it's sometimes not worth it risking it. Very good. All right, well, we're gonna close it out. And uh, Nico, we really appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts and comments with us today. Um, and we really appreciate what you do for our colleagues and for our producers in the state of Florida. My pleasure. Thank you guys for inviting me. Thanks for uh, doing this. It's an awesome program. Thank you for joining us on this Cow Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, ideas, follow-ups, or comments, please reach out to us through our email, forages at ifas.ufl.edu. That is forages at ifas.ufl.edu. Or find us on our social media, uf.forages on Instagram, uf.forage team on Facebook, or uf.ifas.forages on YouTube.